All right, here we are. Welcome, everybody. Welcome, welcome to the Backyard Professor Sunday Night Firesides. I got to put that in. Oh, almost lost my magnet. I'm going to try a new technique here tonight just for kicks and giggles. How was everybody? How's your week's been? Doug Vincent, welcome. Dan Vogel, Moksha Raver, Mark Crespin, Cherish, Wendy Roland, Mosia. How is everybody doing? Patty Cake. Looks like you guys are doing good. All right. Well, tonight, tonight I have a most significant issue to discuss. Tonight, we're going to study the mysteries uh, for real. Uh, I've discovered an interesting few things that I wanted to share. And the more I looked, the more I found. And the more the I found, the better I felt. And so I've got about a 29-day presentation to give to you that I'm going to try to mash down into about two hours. <laughs> there is so much dadgum material here. Hey, Tony from in Indiana. Good to see you. Yeah, uh, Michael Ray, good to see you. You guys look like you're doing well. Yeah, the temple garment markings, Cherish, that's exactly what I'm going to talk about. The compass and the square in uh, the symbolism of, uh, now Freemasonry and Mormonism. So let's go ahead and get started. It is 6 o'clock. Hey, welcome, everybody. I'm seeing the numbers go up. That's good. I've got uh, three people here now and negative 60 likes. That's good. You guys want me to keep going. Yeah, baby. Hey, Newton Lemos. Greetings, greetings from Brazil. Welcome here. That's a long travel just to listen to me. <laughs> Lisa, how are you? Lashram32, good to see you. Ah, oh, yeah, yeah. Tim Rathbone, welcome. Okay, you guys. Now that Mark is throwing uh, flowers at patty cake, I can get started. Woohoo! All right, here we go. Peter Higgs, good to see you. Yep, beautiful sunny day here, too. So, good morning to you. I'm glad you're having a good morning. I'm going to try a new system here. Uh, so, I want to. I'm going to begin, I'm going to do quite a bit of reading tonight, and I've got several uh, video, uh, well, video, whatever, um, pictures to show you, because Freemasonry and symbolism and Mormonism is probably best to understand when you present pictures, and pictures are worth about a billion words in some respects, and especially this one, because I have discovered uh, Albert Pike's overall uh, contention of where symbolism came from in Freemasonry and the importance of it to him. And I think that was really sensational when I read this. I've read it multiple times this last week just to make sure I comprehended it, and I do. So, okay, uh, let me start by... I'm going to start with uh, one of the most intriguing books ever published. So it's a great way to start. And this is Brooke, The Refiner's Fire. Now, I know none of you have ever heard of this guy before, nor have you read the book. So I'm going to read a selection out of his book for you. 
And this is going to turn on some of you and probably be lost on some of you. We'll see. Uh, I want to make sure that I get information down. I want to give you some intriguing stuff that I'm going to talk about in later videos as well. Now, none of this that I'm doing tonight is exhaustive. I so promise. Uh, I'm just kind of touching the surface more or less on every single item and from every single age with which I talk about or read about, I should say. So just understand there is nothing exhaustive here and I get, I need to get going. So let's do this. Uh, this is page 194 of Brooke, the refiner's fire. I'm not going to be able to give you page numbers out of every book because I have about 200 gajillion things to read tonight. So here we go. The Old Testament priesthood of the Melchizedek endowed with great magus-like powers and identified with Christ in the book of Hebrews was not unique to the emergent Mormon theology. The most widely diffused use of the Melchizedek was in the ritual of the royal archmasonry, however, which is a great significance in the framing of early Mormonism. In the ceremonies installing the high priest of the royal arch, the Masonic manuals uniformly borrowed from Hebrews 5 verse 6 to tell the candidate that thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, just as the royal arch tale of Enoch's treasures appeared to have had a formative influence on Smith's account of the discovery of the gold plates. So, too, this mythology had powerful resonances in the new Mormon cosmology sketched between 1830 and 1833. So we've got a three-year period there. In over 100 revelations and revision of the biblical book of Genesis, a spiritual, powerful high priesthood, a concern for a primal language and a plan for the construction of temples were the underpinnings of this cosmic system that Joseph Smith was putting together. The realization that the Mormon faithful would be endowed with power on high. Then I'm going to skip over to page 249. And hey, RFM, good to see you, buddy. Yes, backyard professor, it is. Yes, you have come to the wrong spot. You're supposed to be over there in the other room, but you're welcome to stay here if you'd like. We love having you, yes. Besides, you promised you'd show up tonight. Yeah, baby. Yeah, baby. Yeah. All right. Page 249. Now, this this one, this kind of gives an overall, you know, the, uh, the Mormon apologetic is to minimize the influence of the Masonic system, and it doesn't matter whether it's the religious, the historical, the symbolic, it doesn't matter. Minimize it as much as possible so that you can claim that it was a pristine revelation only from heaven to Joseph Smith. And yet all of the early Mormons, including Joseph Smith, absolutely loved it. They said, yeah, of course we have influence from masonry. We are restoring it properly. It's a far cry from today's Mormonism that is so reticent and just borderline cowardly about their real heritage. The Masonic heritage is magnificent as far as I'm concerned. And I speak with a biased Masonic background of my own too. So there it is. 
Well, there is overwhelming evidence of the continuity between Masonic and Mormon symbolism, the sun, the moon, and the stars, the lesser lights of the Masonic symbology had long been woven into the Mormon cosmology of three heavens, and the sun and the moon were to be pr uh, prominently displayed on the Nauvoo Temple. Yes, the sunstones, the moonstones, the stars, and so on and so forth on the Nauvoo Temple, <laughs> those were Masonic. Yeah, right? The Masonic beehive, the all-seeing eye, the phrase holiness to the Lord. Yes, the phrase holiness to the Lord is Masonic. Yeah. Would be ubiquitous symbols to Mormon Utah where the temples would reflect the Mormon encounter with Freemasonry, both in their sculptured ornamentation and in their east-facing orientation. Yes, the temples facing east. That is a Masonic convention. Yes. Following the tradition of Masonic temples, which Mormon Masons closely observed when they built a lodge building in Nauvoo, of course. Well, the Utah temples faced east. And the east ends of the building are devoted to the Melchizedek, mirroring the eastward orientation of the Masonic Lodge buildings. Both were intended to be replications of Solomon's Temple, a connection that Joseph Smith made when he began to call the Nauvoo Temple the holiest of holies. Throughout the temple rituals themselves, there were striking similarities with Masonic symbolism, especially those of the York Rite, which was established at the Nauvoo Lodge. The temple garments, ding, 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 ding. This is, I'm not going to really talk a lot about the garments. I'm going to share more or less the symbolism of the square and the compass on the garments. Very similar to Masonic ceremonial robes, garb including an apron with the Masonic compass and square, which was also among the emblems of the temple veil. Yeah. The language of the tokens and penalties of the Mormon priesthoods had exact parallels in Freemasonry, progressing from parallels with the first three degrees of entered apprentice, fellow craft and Mormon Mason, or master, <laughs> Mormon Mason, hi, yi yi and master Mason, to parallels with the Royal Arch and the higher degrees. Among these parallels to the first degree were the signs of the five points of fellowship, the penalties for disclosure of secrets, and priestly hand grips and bodily signing, including the sign of the nail. Parallels with the Royal Arch included the use of the Temple Veil as the site of ritual discourses and catechisms and the role of a ritual actor representing God. There were also very specific parallels between the ritual drama of creation and the fall from the Garden of Eden, the initiation of the first Masonic degree, the entered apprentice, included a recitation of the first three verses of Genesis chapter 1, the creation story. The ritual drama of creation in the garden was more fully developed in the higher degrees. According to one expose of masonry, 
published in Cincinnati in 1827, the seventh Royal Arch degree included an address to the candidate on creation and the fall from the garden in which a scroll taken from a gold box is given to Adam and passed down to Solomon and eventually buried in the arched vault to be rediscovered at the rebuilding of the temple. In the ritual of the 28th degree of the Scottish Rite, the Night of the Sun, Father Adam, vested in a robe of pale yellow, conveyed the candidate through the ritual, which included a discourse on the Philosopher's Lodge and a hermetic catechism on the quintessence of the elements, the fire of the philosophers, and the philosopher's stone, well, here Adam is served by seven cherubim, including Michael, reminiscent of the seven governors of the Egyptian genesis of the hermetic Pymander, anticipating the three Mormon creator gods. The symbolism of these higher degrees carried us back to the Masonic and Hermetic connotations of the discovery of the gold plates in the Hill Cumorah. So that's some of the ideas that I wanted to open up this discourse of obfuscation with which I'm about to present. I have several books that I'm going to uh, grab stuff from to share with you. I also have a new way I'm going to try to do some visuals. We'll see how well I can pull this off. I'll look like a complete dingbat, but it should work. Hang on real quick, and we shall get started. Yeah, baby! Okay, now, first off, Albert Pike, his book, Esoterica, which Arturo de Hoyos uh, edited some years back. Excellent book. I want to take some selections from it and share some some ideas with you. Oh, well, first off, I may as well save myself some time. I was going to do this earlier. Ah. For Pete's sake. Wouldn't you know it? This magnet is so pee-picking strong, I can't even work with it. Oh, for crying out loud. Hold on, I'm getting cordulated. There we go. Now it'll be ready when I'm ready <laughs> to go. All right, let's put that weight down there just in case. If I knock this over, I'll squeal. So, okay, now here we go. I got to move this over just a little. There we go. Now it doesn't look quite so amateur, right? Yeah, hey, that's called coordination. <sighs> I should have done this 20 minutes ago when I was getting ready. Uh, Albert Pike, in the preface to his Esoterica, this is really interesting. The symbolism of masonry is, in my opinion, the soul of masonry. Now, William Hutchinson's The Spirit of Freemasonry, written in 1775, generally regarded as the first book devoted specifically to Masonic symbolism, his book, which was published a hundred years before the advent of the authentic school of Masonic research, where they actually use the valid historical methods of current historical inquiry today of modern historiography. These helped establish a trend 
that accepted the legends of the craft as history. Its devotees often ascribing Freemason's origin to Adam, Noah, Peleg, Moses, King Solomon, or other biblical notables. And then I, I have in my note always the biblical basis, and this is exactly where Joseph Smith put the papyri that he acquired in 1835 from Michael Chandler. He always did that biblical basis type thing. Following Followers of this romantic school also sought Masonry's origins among the ancient Egyptians, the Pythagoreans, the Roman Collegia Fabrorum, the Knights Templar, and other traditions employing ceremonial and symbolic instruction. Pike suspected that the true secrets of Freemasonry lay within its symbolism. Freemasonry teaches neither spiritualism nor magic. That is, the ability to alter the physical world by little-known powers of the mind or by appeal to otherworldly beings and forces. Uh, Pike wrote that off. What is the mystery in Freemasonry? For Pike, the answer lay in its symbolism, which he deemed its true essence. And now we get the first slide. Let's see how this is going to work. Is this going to work? Oh, nice. Good. You don't have to look at me. You can see this beautiful thing. I'm going to put that right in the center. The symbolism of Freemasonry was at once moral, philosophical, and religious. It reminded the initiated of man's duty to God and his neighbor and assured him that God is not remote, but is rather approachable, taking a personal interest in his creatures. Additionally, Freemasonry's unique ability to espouse the cause of humanity while declining to assert the correctness of one faith over another, this is what appealed to Pike's sense of tolerance. His several revisions of the Scottish Rites rituals progressively espoused the rights of man by means of a government maintained by the consent of the governed. Pike believed that great truths, esoteric and divine, lay concealed within the symbolism of Freemasonry. The more Pike researched, the more he believed that the blue degrees contained the invaluable mysteries of Freemasonry. He recognized a congruence between hermetic and Masonic symbols, the square and the compasses, the sun and the moon, the three pillars and other symbols were common to both hermeticism and Masonic Rituals. He concluded that the symbolism of Freemasonry lay in antiquity and was either borrowed directly from Hermeticism or else the two shared a common ancestor. Albert Pike wrote to Robert F. Gould, January 28, 1888. I'm back. He wrote to Gould, I cannot conceive of anything that could have induced Ashmole, Manwaring, and other men of their class to unite themselves with a lodge of working Masons, except this, that as alchemists, Hermeticists and Rosicrucians had no association of their own in England or Scotland. They joined the Masonic Lodges in order to meet one another without being suspected. 
And I'm convinced that it was the men who inherited their doctrines who brought their symbols into masonry, but they kept the hermetic meanings of them to themselves. So to these men we owe, I believe, the master's degree. The substitute word means the creative energy of the father. The demiurgus and Hiram, I think, was made the hero because his name resembled Hermes, the master of the lodge, the divine word, the Egyptian thoth, the mercury of the alchemists. In September 8, 1888, he wrote to Gould, I am satisfied that part of the symbols after that in use and still in use came into masonry from the Hermetic books. Well, it's going to take me forever. Woohoo! So he says it came from the Hermetic books. Freemasonry in England from the time when it was no longer wholly consisted of gathering of working men was for the workers or commonality a Christian and Trinitarian society. Hiram being... Hiram being to these after the master's degree was introduced, the representative of Jesus Christ, the divine word, but that to a limited number, its symbols had a more general and more ancient meaning, concealing from the vulgar and teaching to a few adepts the doctrines of the hermetic philosophy and alchemy. These symbols came to masonry in part from hermeticism, which gave to masonry its own explanations of which masons already possessed. The hermetic materials are also the basis of Rosicrucianism. But all the symbols of masonry are not derived from the operative art. The sun and the moon were not symbols from such an art, nor was the triangle, nor was the blazing star, nor was the 47th problem of Euclid. The compasses in the square were used as hermetic symbols long before masonry had them. In his lectures, in his lectures to the Royal Order of Scotland, Pike had this to say: if the difference relative if the different relative positions of the square and the compasses upon the altar in the different degrees teach only what the candidate is told they teach nothing at all and are unmeaning simulacra of symbols every legitimate symbol of the blue masonry lodge every one that really belongs to it is a religious symbol of great antiquity which came to Freemasonry from the Hermetic philosophy by inheritance through Pythagoras, perhaps from the Median Magi, every one of them is the embodiment of a doctrine in regard to the deity and the revelation of divine truths to man. I am convinced that before 1723, now before 1723. They were narrowing this down to the exact time when modern masonry was formally, officially organized. So he says, 
Before 1723, persons professing the Hermetic philosophy had obtained admission into the Masonic lodges, and under the cloak of Masonry, they held their secret consultations, and they made disciples. The Hermetic philosophy was of Greek origin. I'll try to do this simpler. So the Hermetic philosophy was from the Greek origin, was from the Greeks. It was professing an Egyptian parentage. Whether it was the Pythagorean doctrine or not, it certainly partook of the Pythagorean doctrine. And the notions of Plato and Philo the Alexandrian Jew and those current in Asia Minor in regard to the divine wisdom and the creative word in the 17th century, it had developed into alchemy and Rosicrucianism, had the lost had lost the original meaning of some of the symbols using the number four and the square and the cube as symbols of the four elements and the number three in the triangle, the double and triple interlaced triangles and the pentalpha as symbols of the triune deity representing the three divine persons by its salt, sulfur, and mercury, its divine word, the creative potency of the deity, the demiurgus, the Vahumano of Zarathustra, the Egyptian Thoth, the Greek Hermes as expressed in the master's degree by the spoken word at the grave and represented by Hiram the artificer, the symbols of the Blue Lodge conceal the truths of the old Aryan doctrine. But although by the making and adoption of the third degree, and the introduction by the Hermetic symbols, Freemasonry became Hermetic for one small class of its members, became for all the rest a system of morality, veiled in allegory and illustrated by symbols. It had always been Trinitarian, and the cross and the rose upon it was a Christian symbol. The apprentice... The apprentice works with the 24-inch gauge <laughs> and common gavel. Yeah, high-tech visuals. You're not kidding, Scotty. Woohoo! The fellow craft works with the mallet and the chisel of the stone cutter and carver. On the tracing or trestle board, the master draws his designs for the workman to follow. The compasses in the square with arms of unequal lengths, one arm three, the other arm four. These lie upon the altars of masonry with the holy scriptures. Implements of the artificer, but symbols to him who understands them of the most profound truth. Truths, the plumb rule. The level and the square are immovable jewels of the lodge. The apprentice in the northeast corner of the lodge works upon the rough ashlar. And the fellowcraft who has passed from the plum rule to the squares works in the southeast corner on the perfect ashlar, the cube of per perfection and foundation. 
becoming master, he then passes from the square to the compasses. Now, that's a very interesting phrase, isn't it? And the trestle board becomes his working tool. So Hiram the Artificer is the hero of the legend, of course, and the workmen on the temple were the first apprentice and fellows. He represents the divine word, the demiurge, whom everything was made that was made, whom and not the father, masonry styles, the grand architect of the universe. He could be known only by his creative word. And this creative word is the substitute of the vicarial word, the Devar Yahuwah of the Hebrews. The Temple of Solomon is a symbol of the universe. Now that's interesting. Ordered by the will of power of the deity, planned by his wisdom, and created by his word. And these three are represented in masonry by the king of Tyre, the king of Israel, and Hiram the artificer. So, with the tools of the trade, we have some some unique ways to come to an understanding of what masonry is all about. And this tool of the trade is really interesting. This idea, this theme, is that not cutting off? Good, it's not. By using the tools of labor as symbols of profound religious truths, masonry glorifies and consecrates work, dignifies it, and seeks to ennoble it. Necessarily, therefore, it must honor and re reward its own workers and its workers only in life and after death, those who have brought up good square work. In charitable ministrations, in brotherly encouragement, in forgiveness and loving kindness, in furthering its great purposes by strenuous labors of hands or brain with voice or pen, by precept and example, according to the full measure of the power and ability and means and opportunity given freely into each wherewith to work. In Freemasonry, the ancient greater mysteries are revived that as theirs did, its super excellence consisted in the philosophical, in the religious doctrine concealed in its symbols. The conviction dawned upon me that in its symbolism is its spirit of brotherhood, which is its essence. Freemasonry is more ancient and venerable than any of the world's living religions. It has the symbols and the doctrines of the old Aryan faith, which is older than himself, Zarathustra inculcated. The true greatness and majesty consists in the proprietorship of these symbols, and symbolism is its soul. The highest claim of Freemasonry to consideration is that it is a philosophical truth concealed from the masses and taught to the adepts by symbols. How are the craft taught by a due attention to the use of the compasses? To keep their passions within due bounds. That's the question. 
Cannot a man draw a larger or smaller circle of pleasure anytime he wants? Well, yeah. The principle of the moral law by which a man should regulate his conduct are as infallible or absolute as the truths of mathematics. How can the compasses teach these merely because one can draw circles with them? Right? That's a good question, isn't it? When a man can make a, a circle larger or smaller at pleasure. How then does this use to which one may put a circle make it a great light? It is considered one of the great lights of the lodge, the compasses, and the square. And why are the emblem of office and the circle of circumscription placed together on the altar? So unless the symbol conceals some great cardinal truth of morality or philosophy or religion, what is its real and substantial value? That is a great question. It's only those symbols which masonry has inherited from the antiquity of the ages, and which in those ages taught the great truths of philosophy and religion to the few who were adepts that are of any value to Freemasonry. Now, he was writing to several of his other Freemasons all of this information, and they were discussing it back and forth. The religions of the world have always consisted, for the most part, in worshiping the symbol instead of that which is symbolized by it. And that is one of the big keys of understanding uh, religious philosophy of any religion, as far as that goes. Because that's the mistake, and that's the literalizing, the concretizing of the metaphor is the main mistake in trying to grasp the meaning of mythology, legend versus history. And that's what most religions make the mistake of doing. In the Hermetic Secrets, it is said in the second preparation, Soul being now made crude again and resolved into his first matter is Mercury. So the sun is actually Mercury in his first matter. Properly called of such like bodies or the philosopher's Mercury, when the matter is called Rebus. And I want to show you this. This is a really important, really cool symbol the rebus. Maybe I can get over here halfway because I'm going to want to show you some stuff on this one. This is the rebus, the two-headed character. Now, the, the rebus is a phenomenal symbol that has a lot of magnitude attached to it. Not only in Freemasonry, but in Hermeticism in general, and especially in the alchemical materials. Wow, the alchemy makes a big deal about this thing. And here is why. Because chaos, the whole world, wherein are all things necessary to the work, because that only is sufficient to perfect the stone. So this theme of perfecting the stone shows up. What does that mean? I will explore that tonight. Richard the Englishman testifies of me, saying that the primal matter of our stone is called Rebus, this figure here, the two-headed figure. 
twice a thing. That's what Rebus means. Twice a thing. That is to say, a thing which has received from nature a double occult property, which caused the name hermaphrodite to be given to it. What is there with the compasses in the square? And I will discuss the symbolism of the rebus here just a little bit. What is it in these implements that entitle them to be regarded with reverence as two of the three great lights in the lodge? What do they really mean? And what is the meaning of the different relative positions of the points of the compasses and the square in the three degrees? Are these meanings in any way connected with the saying that the principal tenets of Freemasonry are included between the two points of the compass? In the Lodge of the French Rite, when the senior warden is asked, are you a master mason? His answer is, I am. I have passed from the square to the compasses. Now, that's an interesting concept. I have passed from the square to the compasses. The square is an instrument that can be applied to level surfaces and rectilinear angles only. The earth anciently was supposed to be level, of course, with a few bumps of hills and mountains, but it was always considered to be level, and its spherical shape was not regarded when they did land surveys. The compasses, on the other hand, are used to describe circles and in spherical trigonometry in which the square cannot be used. They are therefore a fit symbol of the sky, the heavens from form, as it were, the roof of the half sphere, in crossing which the heavenly bodies appear to describe arcs of circles. And the square is the fit symbol for earth. So we have heaven and earth with the compasses and the square. So that kind of helps expand our grasp of this. The figure with one body and two heads represents a generative principle. A creative power of the deity and the productive capacity of nature. The generative power had its abiding place in the sky, light is the great generative agent, while the productive power is in the flat earth. Every human being is of a compound and double nature. The animal and the material in part, and in part intellectual and spiritual. His body is said to have been formed from the dust of the earth, his soul, spirit, intellect are of another nature. One is earthly, the other heavenly, one material, and the other is spiritual. The compasses, which are a fit symbol of the heavens, are also a fit symbol of all that is heavenly and spiritual. The square, which is a fit symbol of the earth, is also a fit symbol of all that is earthly and material in nature and in man, in every human being, there lives four forces, each are always acting, and two of them are antagonistic to the other two. Two of these belong to the animal, earthly, material nature of man, the animal or sensual appetites and the passions. 
both of these man has in common with the animals, and so far as these rule him, he is but an animal. The other two belongs to his intellectual and spiritual nature. One of them is the moral sense, and it is given to every man to have a moral sense. The other is the reason, which teaches man what is wisest and best for him to do for his own good, and this also belongs in a greater or lesser degree to every man. He says, these do not occur as a result of the various combination of atoms of matter in our bodies. It is a sufficient argument with which to refute those who think they believe that there is no God, at least it was in Pike's day, that it is simply impossible that the moral sense could originate in or be produced by any combination of material atoms or by the action and counteraction of any conceivable forces of matter. To create a moral law or a single tenet of it, there must be a superior will to enact it. And that will must enact it in obedience to the unerring conclusions of an infinite wisdom. When the candidate, when the candidate is prepared to be initiated, he represents man in the state of barbarism, ignorance, and subjugation. He is neither naked nor clothed. He's neither barefoot nor shod, meaning that his faculties are only half developed and that the moral sense and reason within him, though they exist in a dormant condition, because he is hoodwinked and so deprived of light, the symbol of his supposed deprivation of the light of knowledge and the obscuration of his intellect. And he is further symbolically deprived of the light of reason, and knowledge of himself and of nature and of God by being deprived of all the articles made of precious metal, such as gold or silver. For gold was among all of the old nations, the metal of the sun and silver that of the moon. The light of the sun symbolized the direct light of revelation coming from the deity into the soul and enlightening it, while the light of the moon, which is the reflected light of the sun, symbolized the shining into one soul of the light from another. The light of revelation reflected from one intellect into another and illuminating and enlightening it. When he is brought to light, his attention is directed to the compasses and the square on the altar, and he is made to note that both points of the compasses are underneath the square when he's first when his hoodwink is taken off. So that is the shape, that is the position, I should say, of the compasses in the square. And this means that he is about to begin his journey from west to east to seek the greater light. Once he gets to a fellow craft, his moral sense and reason, the two arms have been changed. Now in the fellow craft, only one arm of the compass is under the square, showing that he is making progress. And when he becomes a mason, the square is, is underneath 
the compass, demonstrating that he has mastered the natural sense of his own deprivation, and he has begun acquiring the enlightenment and the reasoning with which he has been learning about. He is a master mason of himself, not the world. And by having accepted the compasses and square lying upon the holy book of his faith, on the holy altar, illuminated by the three great lights that symbolize the deity, the compasses and the square, which are the symbols of God the creator and of nature, of which God is the soul and whose force are his varied actions, it's a true symbol of his moral and intellectual condition. He, in the most solemn manner, pledges honor among all of his fellow men and God and the world. And so that's basically the idea. This begins to give us a better understanding of the meaning of the phrase, the principal tenets of masonry are included between the two points of the compasses, right? Now, how is everybody doing? It looks like you are taking off. No, they don't. The sun and the moon to the ancient Egyptians represented Osiris and Isis. One said to be the deity, the other said to be nature. Thoth, the divine word, Thoth, the divine word, the utterance of humanity, of the divine wisdom, the Greeks called him Hermes. Hermes was thought. The, the parallel between the names are different, but the deity is the same. He's just called by a different name. Piece of cake, right? He represented the giver of all knowledge to men. He was the Logos of whom St. John wrote about in his gospel. In the old Hermetic engraving of the Rebus, and this is the one that I wanted to read a little bit more about, this is a pretty important description of the symbolism of the Rebus that I'll share with you now. The sign of the planet Mercury is above the sign of the sun and the moon, right between the two heads. You can see that midway between them. And the Greeks called this planet Hermes. He is the nearest to the sun of all the planets and is seldom seen. To the Egyptian Hermes, Thoth is ascribed the promulgation of the philosophy distinguished by his name as the Hermetic. In the possession of the Hermetic philosophy came the symbols used by Pythagoras, with his secret explanations and his doctrines in regard to numbers and his secret explanations and knowledge of all which was always confined to a few adepts. And so it was almost universally misunderstood. In the 16th, 17th, and 18th centuries, Hermeticism also became connected to alchemy. We find in Freemasonry the principal symbols of the religious doctrines of the Zen Vesta, the book of the faith of the ancestors of Medians and Persians, the priests styled the Magi, the wise men of the East. 
I'm going to quit using that. That's more of a pain than a help. I honestly thought I could do that, but I'm just going to hold this up. This is Hermes. He's the master of the Hermetic philosophers, the master of the universe, the divine presence in it, the master of light and life, the mode of concealment in things in masonry. It is strikingly shown in the questions and answers, have you seen your master today? The master of the lodge was Hermes, the divine word. The phrase, the sun, the moon, and the master of the lodge finds its exact symbols and representation in the Hermetic engraving. The sun represents the deity, the moon, the divine wisdom, and to these three, the various triads of the lodge allude to. So, the final conclusion in Pike's opinion on the compasses in the square, denoting the movement from a darkness to the light, is the universe is the idea of the divine wisdom, realized as the making under the direction of the inventor, perhaps without his own hands, touching it of the machine of wood and metal, but is the expression in the model of the mind of the inventor. It is in the universe that we see all of the divine wisdom that it has disclosed or will disclose in this life to us. In it alone, we attain unto any knowledge of that wisdom. It is the soul of the universe, and therefore the universe, its body is said to be a second God. In man is the divine word, the voice, the utterance of the divine wisdom. Every human intellect has in it something of the divine nature. It is a ray from that in the deity, which is something higher than our reason and intelligence, but of which there are effects. As light is an effluence from the flame of the fire, these are the doctrines of the hermetic philosophy. So that's basically Pike and the Esoterica in uh, just one of his chapters on the meaning of the compasses and the square. Hang on. I'm going to grab a drink of water. And I've had nothing but a complete disaster with this stupid display. So I'm going to see if I can get away with just holding up the pictures because the stuff I'm going to show you tonight has got to be pretty visual based on what I prepared. I'm going to put those away. So the, uh, the idea that hermeticism, now hermeticism, of course, I mean, there's no real hard, fast <laughs> understanding rule of when it dated. Uh, it probably was about 200 AD or so. And it had influence uh, with Gnosticism and Christianity, all of that. Now, because Pike thought that Freemasonry could be traced back to Hermeticism, the symbols, but the understanding in Freemasonry about those symbols, what we have in Freemasonry is not what the understanding of the Hermeticists had in antiquity necessarily. That's why the higher degrees in Freemasonry were being created and were being added to the so-called 
practical Freemasonry, right? This became the speculative Freemasonry. It was, uh, it was more of a philosophical bent. And it became very religious in many respects, even though Freemasonry is not a religion, which it isn't. So what was the ancient views? What about the ancient stuff? Let's take a look at those. Now, in this particular book, I, I have discovered something uh, as I have been studying antiquity. The more that I read Hugh Nibley in the ancient materials, I like him so long as I don't worry about his Mormon apologetic. Because when I look at how other scholars treat the legends, the myths, the symbolisms in antiquity, there's many things that Hugh Nibley uncovered that nobody else got to because he was such a good reader. If you ignore his Mormon crap and some of the apologetic junk that he throws in there, Nibley's still a pretty good read. Of course, I'm sure there's others whom I have not discovered that are vastly better, sure. But in the meantime, Nibley works pretty dang good. And this idea of the garments, the garments of antiquity had the square marked in them. And they called this an ordinance inscribed upon my garment, the enduma. And it's written in five words. It is the garment which belonged to you in the preexistence from the beginning. And when your time came to be on earth, it, it had the cuts and the marks. And in this particular one, this is called the, the mark the, on the edges of the garments with the diagmata. And these were the mysteries. These were the tokens on the garment. And the interesting thing is those squares were transferred by the church onto the altars. You can see them here, there and there, and then on the top, there and there. And then you see them there and there, and then on the top, there and there. So the the symbol was definitely used in antiquity by, and Nibley will emphasize the Christian stuff because, of course, he wants it to look like Joseph Smith was restoring early Christianity. That's why I say when when you ignore his Mormonizing attempt to apologetically defend Joseph Smith with some of the wildest parallels, but you actually do look into antiquity you do find some interesting things in antiquity exactly like Pike thought with the, the symbolism in Freemasonry. And I thought that was very interesting. Oh, it's the Gamadia. It's the Gamadia. And there's some more interesting ideas of the Gamadia in the uh, garments. 
and this was in Egypt. It represents the, the divine law. It flows to each of the uh, parts of the person. It's kind of fun that way. Now, this one is real interesting, too. I like this one very much. Hold this up so that you can at least see it. It was in the 1800s in Egypt when Petrie, Flinders Petrie excavated numerous mummies and they had these kind of amulet things. And he says the square probably meant rectitude, uprightness, and the other tool, which is hung in that position, they assume because it has a mark on the top of it, means making equilibrium or evenly balanced mind or measure in all things. So the Egyptians also use Gamadia marks, and they say that these are found in the graves of Palestine, but they aren't necessarily all of Egyptian origin. And the real interesting thing is these actual marks now, <laughs> this is really fun to see. These go back way back. It's not only in the Christian world that we find this. It's also in the Chinese. And I'm going to hold this back. I made this enlarged so that you can see it. This is really interesting too, because in Taoist Buddhist tombs in Astana, in Central Asia, Sir Ariel Stein in 1925, what we see here is the king and the queen are embracing at their wedding. And the king is holding the square on high and the queen is holding a compass. These are instruments taking the measurements of the universe at the founding of a new world and a new age. Above the couple's head is the sun surrounded by 12 disks, meaning the circle of the year or the navel of the universe. Among the stars, they can identify the Big Dipper and the garment draped over the coffin and the veil hung on the wall are the same marks. Now, this is the actual tomb here. So they can see that this was a veil, but that blanket, so to speak, over that bed has the exact same depiction as on the wall. And they were reminders of personal commitment, while on the veil, they represent man's place in the cosmos. So that is really interesting that way. So this symbolism is not only through time, certainly way older than masonry, right? Well, it's also in space. I mean, it's in different countries, in different cultures, right? But it is of antiquity. And it's real interesting how they how they talk about that. And the other one that I wanted to say that I wanted to show you is Oh, this was cool, too. One receives the garment always. Now, he calls it garment, right? I mean, he's going to try to find the parallels between the Mormon temple garment and any other clothing that might have any marks. He's going to call it garment. Or it could be a costume. It could be just a shirt or a pair of breeches or a kilt 
or whatever. It's a cloth. It's a piece of clothing people wear. The Masons have these symbols on their clothes also, specifically on their apron. However, in the garment always represents passing from one stage of existence to another. Now, that's the idea of the uh, of the different degrees in Freemasonry, changing up, moving on, and advancing. It marks the condition one is in. To change the garment is to change one's condition. You're actually performing a passage of initiation, and secrecy is important. And, and I thought that was really interesting, too. Uh, also, too, the, the legend of the fate of the garment of the priesthood is, has always been fun to me. The garment of Adam. Now, this is interesting because George Oliver, in his book, The Antiquities of Freemasonry, talks about the garment of Adam. And he describes how Freemasonry was had not only by Adam from the very beginning, but it was practiced and understood in heaven before the world was even made. And it scattered throughout the cosmos on all the other worlds. And the angels themselves practiced Freemasonry. Oliver's Antiquities of Freemasonry, Joseph Smith had access to through several Masons in his in his neighborhood and in his state. It was uh, published in either 1822 or 1823, I believe. So this is interesting that Adam, when he came to earth, had a garment. He received a garment of light when he was in the Garden of Eden. And this is real popular anciently, not just with Adam, the first man, but with uh, lots of different uh, cultures. He was gloriously clothed in Ur, you are. He changed it for or, O-R. The fact that or and er are so similar has led to a great deal of controversy. Er, of course, is light. Or is skin. So Adam lost his garment of light at the fall, and he had to clothe himself in a garment of skin, the reversal of the process. So see, this is where this theme, this idea, this legend comes from. When you change your clothes, you change your position. And isn't that true? When you go to work, if you are someone important, you wear a suit. You don't get a go in faded old crappy Levi's and a tank top to work if you're in a professional situation. Uh, a lawyer or uh, the president of a corporation or whatever, unless your name is Bill Gates, then you don't care. But any president of a bank, they aren't going to dress sloppily. So you do change your position. Yeah. The garment, they say, is a special protection when one visits other worlds. Now, that is remarkable. And it's recorded much about Jesus going from world to world and how he changed when he went to each different world. That's kind of fun. John Chrysostom says that the garment of Adam signifies at the same time both kingship and repentance. And then they talk about John the Baptist's garment. And John the Baptist figures prominently in Freemasonry also. And going around dressed in skins and in camel's hair and in various other things. Skin or light. It's always either garments of skin or light. Kind of interesting that, isn't it? 
And then there are two. Now I'm going to jump around a little bit because we talk about the garments a little bit. Now let's talk about the building. Now, when in antiquity, the most important buildings were temples, of course. Uh, the masons have their temples, but the lodge itself is a microcosm of the universe as well in Freemasonry, even though they probably don't teach it quite that directly. So this overall basic philosophy about temples is remarkably interesting. There are two kinds of temple architecture in antiquity, the circle and the square. The earliest nine pyramids along the Nile were perfectly square. At Gilgal, 12 stones stand in a circle. Generally, the rites are said to be in the form of a circumambulation. You know, the king runs around the bounds in a great circle in his royal progress. And his tour, he visits one by one of each of the holy places, and he's taking possession of his land. That's the that's the ceremony that he shows. He is in possession of the land and, and controls it. And there's the combination. He circumambulates the land three times. There's the circle and the square, because he's circling around square buildings. To the Pythagorean mystic, the cube represents perfect solidity. The sphere is perfect continual motion. And these two must always go together because we find them so combined in ancient temples. There is always motion around, but also always stability in the center. And that's really a fascinating point. That, that is quite interesting. Now, I want to show you this. This is a great picture too. That is a fantastic picture. And that's, that's basically one of the hermetic, that's one of the uh, alchemical pictures there. It is the spark whose light that moves all material things. Matter without light is inert and helpless, says the Pistis Sophia. It is the first light which reproduces the pattern of the heavenly model wherever it touches. When the rays from the worlds of light stream down to the earthly world, these awaken mortals. Sometimes the column of light joins heaven to earth, even as the divine plan is communicated to distant worlds by a spark. According to Carl Schmidt, it is the dynamics of light from one world that animates another. God's assistants, the faithful servants of Melchizedek, rescue and preserve the light particles so that none are lost in space. It's a dewdrop, a divine drop of light that reactivates bodies that have become inert by loss from the former light. It is a little tiny bit of God himself. And this is interesting because in this picture, you can see that this, this messenger, the hand is touching the divine light beam, and it's being split into 10 of the different streams of the Kabbalah Sofarot. And you'll notice also that this messenger is measuring the heart with a compass to measure how much light this person is capable of receiving.
That that is quite an illustration. I, I thought that was wow. I wanted to show you that. that. That was really cool. The light comes down from the beginning to the Father, of course. And then I've got yeah. I'm not going to show you that. I'll skip that. I'll skip that. I'll skip that. Oh, now this is good. See again, the uh, the symbolism is not only of physical things, right? I mean, you got the buildings, you have human clothing, you've got uh, oh, all kinds of stuff with uh, the earth, the heavens, the sun, shadow, trees, pillars, porches, gates, doors, windows, stones. I'll get to in shortly. But that's not the only thing that the ancient symbolisms have have uh, have come up into today in Freemasonry. And, of course, Mormonism adapted some of this through Christianity. I mean, that's inevitable, truly. Uh, and I'm sure Joseph Smith got some of the ideas of some of the symbolism that I'm about to share with you in the Egyptian papyri that he got. But it also came through the uh, Freemasonry Association that he had. Now, you got to understand, the influence on Joseph Smith with, uh, well, through Sidney Rigdon, among others, uh, which I need to do a video of, I promised a good friend of mine that I would do a video on uh, Sidney Rigdon and Joseph Smith and the influence of Sidney Rigdon on Joseph Smith. And I do believe the Masonic influence was quite powerful, even though Rigdon joined it a bit later. Uh, but this, this number theme is so interesting. In the Enuma Elish, it talks about, now the name means as once above, as it happened once above. And it's about the beginning of creation and the Lord challenges uh, the darkness because the darkness showed up and challenged the Lord's right to rule. Right. So in the Enuma Elise, to see this is their Genesis creation story. Uh, God has a fight with the darkness, which is trying to overthrow God. And what he does is he assigns the assignment to Marduk. And Marduk himself uh, is the Lord that is given the authority of God to fight the darkness, etc., etc. And he placed part of the material, he separated, actually he bolted off the darkness from the light, right? And he separated it, and he put part of the material above and part of it below, the Enuma Elish. Between these three levels, there were three different levels, he placed a barrier, a bolt. Then he went the rounds of the heaven, he went around them, in other words, and inspected the various holy places in order to establish an exact replica of the Apsu, which was the dwelling of Ea. So the Apsu, which is basically the abyss, the pit, right, is what is above and what is below. Ea is water. And the Sumerian word for temple is Esagil, Babylonian is Esagila, and that's over the waters of the underworld. So this idea here that we're looking at is he traced an exact replica of each one of these on the other. And this is the Egyptian rule of three, which Gardner tells us about. Whatever happens in this world 
happens above and then again happens below. On earth as it is in heaven is the theme. Well, that's not just a biblical thing. This is happening over in Babylon, and it's happening in Mesopotamia. It's happening everywhere in the ancient world, right? The three levels are related. And then I have a note here that I said, you've got to read in Pike, and this is too good to lose, man. Page 86 and 87, this number three is really prominent in the ancient world, and it probably is in our world too. Uh, there are just some numbers that really do receive more emphasis than others. And in a genuine mythological world, in a genuine, authentic understanding, you will have this repetitive use of certain numbers. Three is one of those. Five is another one. Seven is another big one. And then nine. And, and isn't that interesting? That's all the odd numbers. Well, except for one, of course. One is, yeah, one is interesting, but you have one, three, five, seven, and nine. But the threes in masonry, when Pike elaborated on this, I thought, man, I want to read that because this is really fascinating. How many of us have attached any particular significance to the continual recurrence of the number three in the ceremonies of the Blue Lodge? Now, of course, he's talking to his fellow Masons, right? He says, how many of us have even thought about it? You know, we usually come to Lodge and fall asleep instead of being awake and trying to learn something, right? So, or has been moved by that recurrence to by a desire to know why three keeps recurring. And what connection, if any, that this number three has with any of the other symbols of the degrees? Because numbers, as well as words and things, are symbols, of course. And this number has always been regarded as of special sanctity. It is represented by the triangle of equal sides. Now, all of this is in Freemasonry, right? and by one of the sides of the right-angled triangle as four. The number of the square is by another of the sides, and five by another, and seven by three added to four. The triangle upon the square with one line belonging to both. So in the Scottish and French rites, the cable toe is placed not once, but three times around the neck of the candidate. He obtains admission into the lodge by three knocks. Having entered, he makes three circuits around the lodge, halting while making each at each of the three stations of the master and wardens. His haltings thus mean three times three. When he is brought to light, he beholds the three great lights of the lodge, by the light of the three representatives of the three lesser lights. He, leaned, he learns afterward that the lodge has three principal officers, representatives who represent wisdom, strength, and beauty, the divine wisdom, the divine power, and the divine word, that the lodge has three principal ornaments, three jewels, movable, and three immovable, three articles of furniture, 
three columns, three windows, three degrees, that three years are the term that one is allowed to be an apprentice, that the mystic ladder has three rounds, that the word of the third degree is of three syllables, like the password of one of the words of the fellowcraft's degree, that all signs are threefold, angles, horizontals, and perpendiculars, and in the distress signs are three droppings of the arms. I mean, wow. When he pointed all that out, I said, you know, that, that is really fantastic. Anciently, this idea of the three different levels to uh, reality, the, earth, the, uh, the heaven, the earth, and the underground, the underworld. And all of the ancient cultures knew this, right? This is how they approach the mythological geography uh, for them. I'm not going to show you that one. Oh, this is kind of a fun one. This is actually a beautiful one. That's quite a beautiful one. We are told that the Lord, having accomplished his mission on earth, returned to the topos, that is the place from whence he came. Uh, John 14, 2 and 3, we, we read the same in the Gospel of Peter. God started out by creating a topos where his children could settle. And the idea of distances is very real. A very early Christian writing says, from the place, the topos, which the righteous soul will inherit, our sun, because of its great distance, will look like a tiny grain of flour, a mere speck. It is a real place, but a very great distance away. And that's how these uh, common documents describe in these terms. So we're talking in terms of multiplicities of worlds, Here's a typical quotation on the theme. The Askew manuscript says that after the plan of creation was accepted, it was communicated to all the other worlds, and they approved and rejoices. The world exists, says the second Coptic Gnostic work, so that intelligent spirits might come and inhabit them. The Lord in the first apocalypse of James, mortals cannot possibly count or reckon the heavens. The Lord moves among the worlds. Not only are they countless, they've been going on forever and forever. And he says, Thou light of our world, they say to the Lord, come and be king in our land, our holy city. The Ginza says, The Father taught me about the worlds of the Lord and the glory that abides in them. Justin Martyr has promised endless worlds, endless cosmoses, the early Christians, he says, were. So this theme is an early theme showing the grandness. The, the attempt here is to show the not only the, the beauty of the design of the earthly lodge, its orientation to the directions, uh, the materials that it's made of, the type of stone and wood that's used, the type of flooring, uh, but also the the magnificence of the world. They're trying to give us the theme that things are so much greater and better and glorious than we basically understand them. It's what they're trying to do, right? Hold on, I got to get a drink of water. I'm not leaving.
I'm talking so fast and hard, I can't hardly. Man, I'm just never going to get through all this stuff I have to give tonight. So, everything is plural. That, that was the theme here, the worlds, universes, plans, gods, places, saviors, etc. Now, in the Sefer Yetzirah, and this is an early uh, Jewish work, and uh, it's, yeah, it's, it's mystical. It's pretty deep. It's a Kabbalistic, uh, I think, the three main texts. Now, this one was the earliest written, uh, the Sefer Yetzirah, then later the Bahir came along, and then the Zohar was, was quite a bit later than these other two. But in the Sefer Yetzirah, the earth and the planets are but atoms in the infinity of like systems. That's really interesting, isn't it? So all of this multiplicity, worlds, universes, gods, earths, people, etc., what does this do to the oneness of God? It doesn't do anything at all to it. In nothing is the idea of the real oneness of God more convincingly apparent than in the contemplation of the real cosmos. There are many mansions, says the second Coptic Gnostic work. Regions, spaces, heavens, degrees, and worlds. And they all have but one law. If you keep the law, you too can become a creator of worlds. It is the perfect father who produced the all in whom the all is and in whom the all will rule, says the gospel of truth. Out of the one come countless multitudes, which yet remains in the one, says the Sophia Christi. This pattern keeps the entire physicist, that is the physical universe, in a state of joy and rejoicing, being dominated by one mind and by one great plan. So this is the, uh, the ancient world, the, the old idea of the ancient world, and this is the idea of man as the microcosm. Now in the Sefer Yetzirah, it talks about the I think it's more in the Ba here in the Zohar, but in the Kabbalah you have the uh, the Sephirot, and here this cosmic man, this man of light. See these dark dots? This is the pattern of the Hebrew Kabbalah tree of life. All of those dots. Uh, it's in the tree of life, and this shows man superimposed upon the tree of life as a being of light who is a part of this cosmic tree of life, which is infinite and eternal. And the various sephirot have the 10 different uh, attributes of God is, is one thing they call, you can call it powers or whatever you want to call it, but they are inherently also supposed to be able to be within man. Now, the interesting thing here is man can be balanced with himself or hopefully uh, man can become balanced with the cosmos. And when you go up and down vertically, you can see three rows of dots there. Then there's a center column of dots. Then there's another column of dots also. So this is the idea of balance. You have a left side and the right side. And if you get too much to the left, you have to go more toward the middle so that you can regain a balance, etc. So the tree of life being balanced within us is the ultimate 
idea. That's the object. That's our work from the mystic Kabbalistic point of view. And you do that through love and sharing and being kind and uh, doing service to mankind and so on and so forth. But this balancing theme is really pretty important. It's in the ancient Egyptian, not this particular structure of the tree of life, but the theme of balance definitely is that the judgment scene in the book of the dead, uh, you can see the scales. And this is in one of the uh, papyri fragments that Joseph Smith had where the soul is being judged in the presence of Osiris with Thoth, which is Hermes, who is weighing the soul, weighing your good deeds and your bad deeds. And hopefully that balance is going to be, or that scale is going to be balanced, right? That's the idea. That's what they want to. That is what they're emphasizing on trying to accomplish. And it's always a process, right? It is always going to be a process. Okay, now this is another, uh, just a generalized characteristic, and you can pretty much say this of the Masonic lodges as well. Joseph Smith couldn't possibly have known all of this information about the ancient temples, so he didn't get this idea, this, this philosophical outlook he wouldn't have got about concerning antiquity in the first place, but he certainly would have got it from the Masons in his own city and neighborhood and family, right? And this is the theme. All temples are marked by boundaries, stations, levels, doors, stairs, passages, gates, veils, etc. They all denote rites of passage going from one condition or one state to another, from lower to higher, from dark to light. See, there's that Freemason thing, from dark to light, a complete transition from one world, celestial or terrestrial to another, ultimately the celestial. At certain crucial passages, one must identify oneself by an exchange of names and tokens and show oneself qualified by an exchange of words. This was the characteristic of all ancient temples. It is the origin of the Hermetic tradition now, which comes down to us in such altered but interesting forms as Freemasonry. So even Hugh Nibley in his article, A House of Glory, oh, this is in the farms book, Temples of the Ancient World. Even Hugh Nibley caught where it's coming from and the importance of it. And I thought this argument, now later on in the book, page 462, following uh, Bill Hamblin in his article, Temple Motifs in Jewish Mysticism here in the... Uh, page 462 and 463. He says the ideas that he's been talking about between the, the ascension themes in the ancient Jewish apocalyptic texts, in the ancient Jewish Kabbalah, and then the later Christian Kabbalah in the Gnostic texts, and so on and so forth. A final phase in the history of these ideas came in the late 16th century and early 17th centuries with the origins of speculative Freemasonry in Scotland. The origins of Freemasonry served as an esoteric sponge, absorbing and synthesizing a wide array of religious and occult ideas. And occult means secret, not, not evil, 
right? O-C-C-U-L-T. Uh, we've kind of disparaged that word, not, I think, unjustifiably. Occult simply means something that's just not seen, right, in, in everyday situations. So Christian Kabbalism thus also came to play a role in the development of the esoteric ideas and practices of Freemasonry. And so through it all, the uh, a wide range of Jews and Christians and Gnostics and pagan practiced a group of interrelated visionary ascension motifs and rituals. They included the limitation of the ascent to the elect, the necessity of ritual and moral purity, secrecy concerning the nature of the ascent, and the knowledge learned during the ascent, the ascension into various levels of heaven, representing different degrees of glory, encountering with a priestly angelic hosts, guardians, and guides, a heavenly initiation, and this includes uh, the anointing and receiving of celestial robes. See, your exchange, again, you're going through a boundary, right? And you're doing something, you're changing your station. And so you're taking off your earthly robes and putting on heavenly robes. Remember, this is symbolic. Don't concretize it into literalness or you miss the point. What you're doing is you're moving forward in the cosmos. That's the theme, right? So, and then you have the secret names and tokens of God and angels. You participate in priesthood sacrifices and other rituals. You pass through the veil of the celestial temple into the presence of God, a revelation of the secrets of creation. And you have the exaltation and even the deification of the visionary. An Enoch, of course, is a classic example of that. So these ritual practices and ideas were transmitted among the Jewish and Christian esoteric elites. They were rejected by the later orthodoxies, both Judaism and Christian orthodoxies. They were suppressed. Elements survived in the metaphysical speculations of the Jewish Kabbalists, the Christian Hermeticists, and the medieval magicians. Although the full range of these rituals don't seem to be preserved, late medieval Jewish Kabbalists retained a wide array of ideas and practices. These derived from the archaic mysteries. Ultimately, in the 15th and 16th centuries, these Kabbalistic speculations were adopted by Renaissance scholars and magicians in the form of the Christian Kabbalism. By the 17th century, you had vague reflections of these archaic mysteries made their way into the ideology and the practices of early speculative Freemasonry. So see, this is what Pike argued. And now it's, it's pretty much... I mean, when you can get a when you can get a Mormon to agree with a Mason like that, that's pretty impressive, right? Now it, it's sad. It's kind of unfortunate in a way. I think Hamblin was trying to down downplay. He's trying to denigrate the uh, the uh, line of of coming through time of various different types of rituals and practices and beliefs and all of them ended up into oh just masonry but i think that would be a gross injustice to the basis of his own mormon ritual and exaltation temple instructions and symbols which they got from masonry so, you know, you can't bite the hand of the dog that feeds you.
so to speak. <laughs> you can't bite that hand of the dog that feeds you. Where in the hell did that come from? <laughs> wow. <laughs> Here I am acting all intellectual, and all of a sudden I throw something ridiculous like that out. That's hilarious. I hope you're laughing like crazy. Man, I am. That was funny. All right. You look like you're having fun. You're all swearing, so I've got to be doing something right. Hopefully, you're not swearing at me. Oh, and then I've covered that all right. Oh, now this is interesting, too. And this is just a quick idea by Brian Hauglid in his uh, chapter, Sacred Time in the Temple. Henry Corbin makes the significant observation that there are three temples. The Celestial Temple, the Archetypal Temple, and the Temple of the Soul. And so he characterizes the archetypal temple as the bridge between the other two. This temple archetype is itself a threshold, the communication threshold between the celestial temple and the temple of the soul. And so inasmuch as it is a material edifice, it's constructed in the image of the star or the celestial temple. It's the passage leading to the inner spiritual edifice because it leads back to the source. It is par excellence, the figure and support of that mental activity designated in Arabic by the technical term ta'wil. That is to say an exegesis, a going out of the soul towards the soul. I thought, wow, that's kind of cool. That's on page 636, 637. So there's some more uh, ideas on that. And, oh, crime with the Amid, an hour and a half already. Thank you for all the likes. I'm going to, uh, oh, hold on. Let me, let me read just a couple. Do you mind if I keep going? You want me to stop, don't you? This is boring you to death. That's tough luck. You're going to have to suffer through this because I actually think this is pretty interesting. Uh, it's actually pretty important. Let me grab this real quick. Now, this one, again, here's the... Uh, Here's one of the most important. God made man in his own image and the idea of the cosmic anthropos. Now I'm getting this from David Feidler's book, Jesus Christ, Son of God. And this is the ancient cosmology and early Christian symbolism. It's one of my favorite 10 books. It's absolutely sensational. I love Feidler. Feidler is very, very good. So he says, the idea of cosmic anthropos, the celestial man of light, or the ideal archetype of humanity is found in a wide variety of hermetic and Gnostic teachings, doesn't matter whether they're pagan, Jewish, Christian, or Islamic, nor is the idea limited to the West. The cosmic man represents both the source and the ultimate goal of humanity, serves as exemplar, guide, and telos, He's sometimes portrayed as the first man, the inventor of all the arts and the sciences, 
or the Gnostic Revealer. This is the Logos personified. When we look into Orphic thought, the figure is represented by Fanes, the Illuminator, hatched from the cosmic aid who shines out of the darkness and is the seed of gods and men. In the Hermetic writings, the figure appears as the light word. It's emanated from mind, so he's called the Son of God. In the Christian Gnosis, Christ is the divine exemplar of perfected humanity, of humanity perfected in the mystic body of Christ. So not only did the Word become flesh, but the Logos itself, in its mediational role, is intimately connected with the function of humanity. And when we look in the Jewish Kabbalah, the cosmic man is called Adam Kadmon, and his cosmic body is identified with the Kabbalistic tree of life. And this again, see, this, the dots are the Sephiroth, the tree of life. Here we have the four different worlds and the three different uh, measures of man. It's kind of cool. It's really quite a an overall inclusive, con and of course, this includes women too. We always say man, but this is women too. It's the same thing. In all of these teachings, the same basic idea is expressed. The idea is one eternally rooted in human imagination, at least as far as particular humans are rooted in the universal principle of man, Zosimus of Panopolis, the Christian hermeticist and alchemist, observed that the name of the primal man is Phos, light, depending on how it's accented in the Greek. It can either mean man or light. That's interesting. And of course, light is invariably associated with the figure of cosmic man because Anthropos is a manifestation of mind and light, or illumination. And this, of course, is the hallmark of consciousness, right? In the traditional philosophy alluded to here, it's through the principle of anthropos that the universe is perfected. It's through the agency of humanity that the universe becomes self-conscious, that the eternal principle of understanding, that is, the nous, is realized in actuality. According to the Hermetic writings, eternity, that is aeon, is an image of God. Cosmos is an image of eternity. The sun is an image of the cosmos. And man is the image of the sun, S-U-N. I thought, well, that's kind of, that's really kind of cool. And then I wanted to share this one with you. Oh, Hermes the Good Shepherd. Yeah, we've Hermes is pretty important, but Hermes Trismegistus, the thrice great Hermes Trismegistus, he is pretty important. The thrice great Hermes, he's connected with those valuable writings of pagan gnosis, the Corpus Hermeticum. Like the introduction of the Gospel of John, these writings orbit around the idea of the solar logos and the light word, which emanates from mind, which is the Son of God. So he takes over the attributes of the ancient divine divinity Thoth, the Egyptian divine Thoth, 
Hermes Trismegistus was imagined as an ancient sage, the revealer of all arts and sciences, the inventor of the alphabet, mathematics, writing, theology, geometry. I mean, on and on and on. The Hermetic writings are attributed naturally to him because Hermes the god presides over language. He was very properly considered as common to all the priests, the power who presides over the true science concerning the gods. This is one and the same in the whole of things. So our ancestors dedicated the inventions of their wisdom to this deity, inscribing all their own writings with the name of Hermes. The Hermetic sermons, the Logoi, are written in dialogue between Hermes, the informing word, and a student. Trismegistus is in reality the Egyptian personification of the universal order. So this is the cosmic logos. He's the Gnostic revealer. In other words, he was considered the source of all knowledge previously known only to the gods. And for the Christians, Christ the Logos was the Gnostic revealer, the bestower of liberating knowledge and heavenly wisdom. And the word manifests itself as the mediator between the eternal heavenly principles and their temporal earthly reflections. A similar function is performed by the dialogues of Hermes Trismegistus and the teachings and miracles of Christ. These reflect a common system of cosmological and geometrical symbolism. So geometry was pretty important as a divine knowledge, and that's where you get the divine geometry. The Greek god Hermes, now it's true he is an aspect of the Logos, but he does not in the stories and myths represent as exalted a figure as Hermes the thrice great. He has a far greater amount of cosmic wisdom. So the triple Hermes should be identified with the fullness of the Apollonic Logos, is how that's supposed to work. That's the idea. And so that's kind of fun. So I've I've given you, oh yeah, folks are leaving now. So yeah, it's, it's probably time. I'm I'm over time by several minutes. So why don't I uh gab at you for a minute? I'll carry on. If you're interested in this type of stuff, I have a little bit more I could share with you next week. Oh, I forgot. Boy, I didn't get to that. That was pretty good. Anyway, the the idea here is the uh the, the Mormon adopting different symbols from different groups is not necessarily a heinous undertaking because every single religious group on earth today has acquired either their knowledge or their symbolisms from what was had before. I mean, that's just the way it is. Even the Masons have adapted some of their materials from Hermeticism. But we don't say the Masons ripped off the Hermeticists, do we? No, of course not. It's not a matter of ripping off. It's just a matter of acquiring and utilizing for someone's or some group's own, now say, benefit. I mean, even in Masonry in Joseph Smith's day, there never was a single only true ritual 
with which all others had to comply. Uh, a lodge would open up over here in Ohio, and another one would open down in Arkansas, and another one would open up in New York, and each one of them had different rituals. Heck, they didn't even all have the same number of degrees as far as that goes. But the idea that the Mormon church has gotten squeamish at least at one time. Now, I was told by one of my uh, one of my audience that I don't know the full involvement of the Mormons today with Masons. Uh, I mean, they really could be communicating with them and doing work with them behind the scenes, kind of like them acquiring money. If so, great, because I know the Masons are all about brotherhood and goodwill, but they're not going to sit their dead lazy butts on hundreds of billions of dollars and do nothing with it, except save it for a rainy day. The Masons are vastly better morality than that. So, you know, hey. Mormons, there's things you could learn from the Masons right now that you ought to try to emulate. Maybe the Mormons ought to try to emulate the Masons now a little better. That would be my suggestion. Anyway, thank you for all your contributions and your comments and your, your ideas. Uh, oh, Mark Crispin, thank you. That's very kind of you. Yeah, yeah, baby. Mark Crispin, yeah, baby. Yeah, baby. There you are. It's just stupid. It's just stupid. All right. So, okay, you guys, I am going, yes, they do, Willie. Masons really do give a boatload to charity all the time. I mean, they have that entire hospital free. I can't remember the name of it, but it's a world famous one, <laughs> except in my mind that it should be, but uh, yeah. And they, they do medical work for you for free, you know? So it's, it's an impressive organization. So uh, I'm going to go ahead and call it good. Uh, this didn't exactly go as planned, but it went okay. Of course, nothing ever goes as planned, but uh, thank you for showing up. I appreciate all of your friendships. I'm very grateful you showed up. I hope you learned something. Um, I, will, I will continue this discourse, or else maybe I will take up my... Uh, friend's idea on exploring Sidney Rigdon and his relationship with Joseph Smith or possibly William Law. That's that's some real interesting uh, early Mormon history that a lot of people don't know about, including myself. <laughs> it might be great to research it out and just kind of see uh, what really was up with Sidney Rigdon. So that might be interesting. Oh, well, thank you, Mosia. That's very kind. Why not both? Elisa, good argument. I, I could do that. Yeah, celebrate, baby. Sidney Rigdon. Doug Vincent wants to know more about Sidney Rigdon. All right. Rigdon. Cool. Okay. Anything in Nauvoo. Right, Willie. Anything in Nauvoo is always interesting. I absolutely agree. Oh, Teresa Pittman. Thank you. Yeah, I'm going to too, Teresa. <laughs> more bad deeds. <laughs> Woohoo. Good and bad is someone's judgment, though, isn't it? Yeah. You know, what you do good for someone might end up being bad for someone else. You never know. Sometimes that's how it works, yeah. Oh, thank you, Patty Cake. That's very kind. 
I know, Willie, the church doesn't like to talk about Sidney, and that's why I want to, because I don't know that much about him, because why is he being so hidden, so to speak, you know? Kind of interesting. Any more than they want to talk about John C. Bennett or William Law, other than in the context of a negative point of view. But I really do have a sneaking suspicion there's a whole lot more to that whole uh, issue than meets the eye. Yeah. They certainly have not put it in the Sunday school lessons, <laughs> is my serious. Suspicion. All right. You're welcome, Radio Free Mormon. Oh, thank you, Mark Crispin. That's very kind of you. Much love and respect back at you. You betcha. Yeah, me too, Doug. Vincent, something is afoot with Sydney. So, does tarot tie into this, Mr. Natural? Yes, it does. Tarot ties beautifully into the ancient mystery. Well, it's the symbolic. Uh, it's the picture form of the mysteries, as far as that goes. Yeah. Tarot and Freemasonry. Wow, there's a boatload of hermeticism. Oh, my gosh. Hey, I could actually do the ascent ritual with you with the tarot cards and share the symbolism of the tarot cards as it is understood in the early Christian and Gnostic eras also. Uh, that might be funner than all get out. The stare of the planets and the ascension up the ladder of the Jacob in tarot with the symbol. That could be fun. Oh, thank you, T.O. Yeah, you love it when I show you the books I reference. Oh, well, thank you. Yes, I need to do more book reviews. Well, I could do a book review on that tarot book that shows about the uh, tarot ascension that might be spectacular. It's really quite fun. Yep. Well, thank you, Tim Rathbone. I always appreciate you coming on, too. You're, you're a huge intellect. I look up to you and admire you very much. Radio Free Mormon, I also admire you and respect you much. Mosia, I mean, everybody, man. Oh, well, look, I'm getting responses. Mosia and Mr. Natural. Oh, Willie, thank you. That's very kind of you. Yeah, T.O., there is an ascension in the tarot. Yeah, yeah, right. There really is. It's an actual ritual. I'm not kidding. <laughs> and, and the symbolism of the cards are just spectacular. Covers the ancient uh, symbols of Gnosticism and Hermeticism and alchemy and Freemason. I mean, it all ties together. It's really crazy. It really is. Yeah. All right. Thank you, Erwin Mager. Appreciate that. Deborah Kittredge, welcome. Yeah, please do the ancient tarot and symbolism. Okay. Uh, well, if you guys seem to be coming on hard on that. Yes, there teaches. Yeah. Please do the tarot patty cake. All right, you guys. It looks like several of you. Thank you, Peter Higgs. Yeah. RFM always makes me laugh too, Teresa. Yeah, I'll do some tarot. I want to dig up RFM's basement. No, no. Sounds very interesting, Mosia. I, I promise it'll be interesting. I know, right, Elisa? Tarot is a Mormon taboo. And you know why? Because they're just dumb as spit 
about its reality, the intention and the proper use of it and all that. They've just instantly judged based on someone else's false views. And so they, they think it's bad. <laughs> you know, they refuse to use their own brains on it. And so they misunderstand it. And they're so stupidly happy to misunderstand it, you know. It's their loss, not mine. Uh, Joe Swick demonstrated so many fabulous things on the tarot to me that uh, it was spectacular. Yeah, I will. I will. Uh, I will do the tarot, the ascension in the tarot. I think that'd be fun. Seriously, I think that'd be a hoot. In fact, it will tie into some of the stuff I still have that I never got to tonight to completely finish this idea on the mysteries. So, yeah. Well, I mean, that's why I was doing the Mithraism, too, because of their the Mithraic liturgy is all about an ascent to heaven. Absolutely. It ties into Mithraism, the tarot does. <laughs> it's crazy, I know. But but it really does. So Peter Higgs. <laughs> Magical rocks and disappearing plates. Right? Right? Yeah. The church is against tarot, but it's okay with magic rocks and disappearing plays. Yeah, I get it, man. The uh, you know, the the consistency. <laughs> they just keep talking, you know, it's Mormonism is so funky sometimes, isn't it? Yeah. Really, Mr. Natural, you knew Joe Swick in college. Yeah, I, I got to talk to him for hundreds and hundreds of hours. It's because of Joe that I became a Freemason. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, he's a wonderful man. Oh, gosh dang, I have learned so much from him. Yeah, Mosia, that's what the church stupidly says, all right. That's because you're using your time using cards instead of paying them your hard-earned money and cleaning their own toilets, and I say to hell with them. Why should I accept that biased interpretation, right? Yeah, so it's kind of stupid. Yep. I didn't, T.O. Did I ever get to read Algis Uzdavini's? No, I never did. Wow. I'll have to uh, I'll have to look him up. Yeah, I'd like to look him up. It might be fan fantastically interesting to see. So wow, I think I've gotten more likes this uh this particular fireside than many, many others. So thank you very much for your generosities and, and help. So, okay, I'm going to call it good. I'm approaching two hours. Thank you for being my audience, for, for sticking around with me through the thick and the thin. And man, do I lay it on thick. Uh, Peter Higgs, does this mean BYP Tarot will lead into anointing oils and crystal rocks and such? No, it never did me. So I, I my, what I did, what tarot did for me is it helped me tie in more connections with symbolisms, both natural, ancient, modern, medieval. It helped me want to read and study areas of history that I wasn't familiar with. Yeah. But it didn't mean I got off in all kinds of weird, nutsy, loony, uh, expositions and hobbies and all that. No, I never, I never had any problem with any of that. I use it as an intellectual tool, believe it or not. So yeah, that's kind of fun stuff.
I'll show you how I used to. Maybe I can, maybe I should do a series on tarot and show you how I use it and what 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 makes it tick for me personally. That might be kind of fun. Okay, Sean S. Thank you for coming. See you next time. Good night, Teresa. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, Peter Higgs. Definitely. Okay, everybody's taking. Hey, Dean Schwank. Yeah. Happy Independence Day to you, too. And Sean S. Yeah, yeah, that's true. All you have to do is mention the Ouija board, and that's all the apologists will focus on. They don't have a clue any more than anyone else does. So it's kind of sad, but oh, well, it's their choice. So, All right. Peace and love. We'll see you. Yeah, I'm going to head out. So you guys have a wonderful week, and I will see you next Sunday. We'll look at the tarot. That might be kind of fun. Might be interesting. Not uh, not as a prognosticating, silly new age view at all. Uh uh No, I'll bring you. I'll bring you more information on symbolisms and the ascension and the meaning of the cards in very very cool ways. All righty. See you later. Yeah, the a wait what the yeah the weight deck. That's the one I'll use. Either that or Paul Foster case. I do too. Thank you, Radio Free Mormon. All right. See all of you. Thanks for the thumbs up, JP. You're awesome. Don't argue with me. All righty.